right, everyone. Welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by. I do appreciate it. Please like and subscribe or follow or whatever it is that they do on the video streaming service that you're watching me on. If you like this show, I would really appreciate it. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about The Silence of the Lambs, released on February 14th, 1991. Directed by Jonathan Demme, he also directed Philadelphia with Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington. That's a pretty heavy movie. It's not one that you're probably going to want to watch a bunch of times, but it's pretty gripping. It's some important stuff going on in it, and I I would say it's worth a watch at least once. So for the writers, this movie was based on the novel of the same name by Thomas Harris. It's actually the third book in a series of four It was adapted to the screen by Ted Talley, and he also adapted a movie called Red Dragon, which is actually the second book in the series, and that was released as kind of like a prequel in 2002 because they had already come out with The Silence of the Lambs, and it kind of didn't really fit the chronology in people's minds to have it not be prequely. For the producers, we have Ron Bozeman, Edward Saxon, and Kenneth Utt, and all three worked as producers or executive producers on Philadelphia, the same one that Jonathan Demme worked on. For the composer, we have Howard Shore, who is an amazing composer, let's be honest. He did the Lord of the Rings movies, the Hobbit movies. He's worked on a bunch of stuff with David Cronenberg. He's also worked on quite a bit with Martin Scorsese. He's truly an amazing composer, and he has an equally amazing resume. So for the cast, we have Anthony Hopkins, who plays Dr. Hannibal Lecter. And for some reason, I exclusively picked movies that I haven't actually seen for his filmography. Don't ask me why. But he was in Hitchcock, which is the movie that's basically an Alfred Hitchcock biopic. But it's I think it's more about the scandalous things that were going on behind the scenes on Alfred Hitchcock movies involving certain starlets. He also was in Bram Stoker's Dracula, which stars Gary Oldman. It's also got Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves. Like I said, I mean, it's just it. I like Gary Oldman. I, you know, I, I think I could enjoy it, but it also doesn't call out to me like, Brandon, you must see this movie. And then he was in Chaplin, which stars Robert Downey Jr. He plays Charlie Chaplin. I've never gotten around to this one just because it's, it's, it's like, I don't know if I want to watch an entire movie about Charlie Chaplin. I like some Charlie Chaplin movies, like The Great Dictator is amazing especially if you just watch the final speech, it's fucking riveting. But for the most part, I I don't know that I'm that interested in Charlie Chaplin's life. Then we have Jodie Foster, who plays Agent Clarice Starling, and she was in Taxi Driver when she was quite young still, and she, I think, played an underage prostitute. It's been like 20 years since I've seen Taxi Driver, and I really don't remember much about it. She was also in a movie called Contact, and I took forever to see that. It came out in like the mid to late 90s, and I heard really mixed things, mostly not so great things about it. And it's like when I watched it, I was like, Jesus, like the movie, it had potential, but it's like they closed it out on such a shitty, indecisive note. It's like they didn't really want to say 
one way or the other what happened. And it's like, oh, fuck off. Like, don't do that. And she was also in the movie Maverick with Mel Gibson and James Garner, which is based on an old TV show. Then we have Scott Glenn, who plays Jack Crawford. And he was in Apocalypse Now, which is, for my money, one of the most overrated movies of all time. It gets talked about like it's one of the all-time greats, and just to sit through it is a chore. He was also in The Right Stuff, and I've been meaning to get around to seeing that, but it's actually like three and a half hours long, so it's always a difficult chess game in my head. It's like, Brandon, you could watch two movies in the time it takes you to watch this one movie, and although people say this three and a half hour movie is good, it also might suck because a lot of people are idiots. And then the last one we have is Ted Levine. He plays James Buffalo Bill Gum, and he was in Heat, which is previously covered on this podcast, and I like Heat quite a bit. I think that it has a few shortcomings for my money. I mean, I understand a lot of people think it's like one of the greatest crime thrillers of all time, but I, I just, I, I have my points of contention. There are some slow spots here and there, but I still really enjoy it. And he was also in the movie The Fast and the Furious. This is the first one from 2001. And I actually really like that first Fast and Furious movie. It's pretty fucking solid. It's a little over the top and cheesy, of course, but I still, I find it enjoyable. I, th- I think it's, I think it's a good watch and it's, it, it's, it's just fun. So for casting notes, early in pre-production, Gene Hackman was intended to direct and star as Jack Crawford with him and the studio intending to split the cost of acquiring the rights to the story. Dino DeLaurentiis originally owned the rights as a result of producing the movie Manhunter in 1986, which is an adaptation of Red Dragon, which I mentioned earlier. Dino De Laurentiis also has a famous chef daughter who has several of her own cooking shows on TV. Sources are telling me by way of an imaginary earpiece that Giada De Laurentiis is very hot. Yes, okay. So... Plot synopsis. A female agent investigating a slew of murders of young women must turn to a highly intelligent, incarcerated, cannibalistic killer to get advice on the case. And holy fuck, this tagline. So sometimes it feels like people post taglines on IMDb, which is where I get these. It's like they post the voiceover from trailers and it it doesn't fucking work. To call it a tagline is ridiculous. But this is what it says, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, brilliant, cunning, psychotic. In his mind lies a clue to a ruthless killer. Clarice Starling, FBI, brilliant, vulnerable, alone. She must trust him to stop the killer. It's like, it's not even like well-written. It's not even like, it doesn't have anything clever about it. It's, it's shit, man. Like, I, I don't know what this is from. I tried to find it in a trailer and I didn't really want to dig too deep because I didn't care that much. But that's what I was dealing with as far as taglines were concerned. So let's just dive right into the plot of this fucking movie. So Clarice Starling is a student in training for the FBI and she goes to see an agent Crawford and checks out a series of crime scene photos on his bulletin board about a killer named Buffalo Bill before Crawford actually arrives. Crawford is just kind of confirming Starling's background when he gets there. She wants to work in his behavioral sciences division. He's like the agent in charge of that division. So he wants her to talk to a psychiatrist turned cannibalistic killer named Dr. Hannibal Lecter because 
He has been unwilling to cooperate with other investigators, and she, he thinks that she might be able to get through to him. So Starling goes to the facility where Lecter is imprisoned and is given a rundown by the creepy Dr. Children, who's like the head of the facility. And he hits on Starling, and he tries to rile her up with all of these Lecter stories, and it's kind of ridiculous. So the movie is really fucking excellent about building suspense throughout the story, especially in these moments leading up to seeing Dr. Lecter for the first time. The inmates in the cells leading up to Lecter say inappropriate things to Starling, including such eloquent things as, I can smell your cunt. Mm. So what you have to understand is that Lecter is super intelligent and manipulative, so Starling kind of has to tiptoe around with her words not to upset him. And Crawford is a total fucking ass face for making Starling do this, but he's clearly desperate to try and figure out what these Buffalo Bill killings are all about. The interaction between Starling and Lecter is intense, and he tries to figure out her past, and then he sends her on her way, but as she leaves, an inmate masturbating in his cell throws ejaculate in her hair, and Lecter calls her back and apologizes for the lewd behavior and gives her a lead on an old patient of his who might be able to help out with the Buffalo Bill case. And so there's this very brief flashback with Starling as a young girl, excited as her dad comes home, and Lecter was correct about her suppressing her West Virginia accent. And in the present, we see her struggling in training, and she just, it's like she's her mind somewhere else, basically. It's not like she's a bad agent, it's just that She's clearly, like, very worked up about this whole Lecter thing. The lead on Lecter's patient leads to an old storage unit, and she discovers a man's head in a jar in the unit, and she deduces that it was Lecter's storage unit, and the head in the jar was actually made up with women's makeup. When she sees Lecter again, it's clear that he wants her to bring him the Buffalo Bill case file, and he also makes it clear that he wants to be relocated to a new facility where his cell might have a view, basically. The scenes with the actual investigation are occasionally interspersed with scenes of who we assume to be Buffalo Bill and him carrying out his crimes. The featured victim is listening to Tom Petty's American Girl in her car. Nice choice, I'm a big fan. Before being tricked by Bill into the back of his van where he incapacitates her and then abducts her. All of the victims are younger, plus-sized women, though it's not totally clear what motivates Bill at this point. So Crawford briefs Starling on how Bill holds women alive for three days and then shoots them, skins them, and dumps them in different rivers. I like this story. This may be obvious to say, but the rewatch value diminishes significantly even compared to other investigative thrillers. Like, you can't forget what the climax of this movie is and some of the key things that happen. So it's like you're watching it and you're like, this isn't like, I know, I know why this is happening and I know what's going on here. So we see a flashback of Starling's dad's funeral and it's kind of cool how it starts as adult her and then transforms into her as a kid. Also, Tracy Walter, who plays Bob the Goon from the 1989 Tim Burton classic Batman, plays a man named Lamar who opens up the bag holding a victim's body. So the body is waterlogged and obviously smells very bad. So they all have like ointment on their noses. I don't really know what it, I'm sure it's probably some super obvious thing, but I, I don't know off the top of my head what they do or what they use for that. 
Starling is clearly emotional while she's recording the notes on audio in front of Crawford and the others, and they discover a cocoon in the victim's throat that they gather was too far down to have arrived there by accident, and Starling takes the cocoon to two entomologists who are super eccentric, if you can believe that. They determine the cocoon is indigenous to Asia and must have been raised privately in the U.S., and we get a brief glimpse of the woman who was abducted by Bill earlier in captivity in a deep pit somewhere. You don't really, it's, it's fucking, you know it's a creepy place, but you really just don't have a good sense of where she really is. So it turns out the captive is actually the daughter of a senator, and I think it's it's her mom is the senator, and... So the mother is on TV pleading with Bill to give her up, and she refers to the daughter by name multiple times, and Starling points out that this is very smart because it makes her seem more human and like less of an object to Bill, which I don't really fucking buy. Honestly, if you're a fucking raving lunatic psychopath like this Bill character, you're not going to give a shit. If if you're hearing her name over and over again, it's not going to fucking matter to you. You're just going to fucking look at her like she's she is what you originally looked at her as. Starling goes to see Lecter again and promises a relocation to a nice facility where he'll be able to occasionally go outside while supervised if he cooperates and assists with the investigation of Buffalo Bill. So she has to reveal things about her personal life and the case to get Lecter to share his insights, which is... A dangerous game to play, of course. I mean, everybody's telling her, don't let Lecter get into your head. Don't let him know any more about you than he needs to know. So we see Buffalo Bill with the captive woman, and it's this super quotable moment where he says, it puts the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. And essentially, like, you find out that it's like what he's doing. It's it's like he picks bigger girls and he has them moisturize and gives them very little to eat to loosen up their skin to make it easier to remove. I don't know the biology behind that, if that's actually like realistic, or I should say the physiology, anatomy, whatever. Whatever science it is, I don't know it. Clearly, I don't even know the name of the science. So Chilton, the head doctor at the facility where Lecter is kept, reveals to Lecter and like kind of taunts him with the fact that it turns out the whole thing about him getting relocated was not real. It was a big bluff and they just kind of manipulated him that way. But somehow in this moment, with no explanation, Chilton like leaves this pen on Lecter's bed because they're like transporting Lecter and Lecter like looks over at the pen And all of a sudden, this pen is gone. And it's like, okay, I mean, this has to happen for other events in this movie to take place. But, like, why is this Chilton guy such a dumb fuck that he doesn't recognize? Like, hey, maybe I shouldn't leave something like that out. And, like, even though Lecter is all, like, what I don't understand is he's all bound up. Like, how does he actually get this? It's it's never clear at all. He's in, like, a straitjacket and, like, a fucking face mask. It's it's fucking wild. So he takes the pen and that's, I mean, that's essentially that, you know, it's like, you know, you know, that's coming back in some way later on. So they still relocate Lecter to this, I think Tennessee is where he goes. And I think it's because the Senator whose daughter is held captive wants to talk to him directly. I I can't really make heads or tails of it. I, I must've missed some key element in that 
part of the story. But he says a bunch of creepy shit to the senator before he finally caves and admits that Lewis Friend was briefly a patient of his and seemingly shares what he knows about this Lewis Friend. Most of the people don't really believe that Lewis Friend is his real name because it sounds super made up. So Clarice is trying to figure out if Lewis Friend is an anagram for something, and she goes to see Lecter at his temporary cell in Tennessee. And Lecter gets Starling to reveal what happened after her father died, and she had gone off to live with his family, and they weren't like bad people or anything. They were decent people, but like they had a farm and she had this encounter where she witnessed these lambs being slaughtered and it was horrifying. And she like tried to rescue them, the the lambs that were still alive. And like she basically opened their pen and they like didn't even have the sense to like escape danger and leave. It was just like they wouldn't go with her willingly. And so she tried to carry them, all this stuff. It's like clearly this very traumatic experience and it impacted her really heavily. So honestly though, fuck the Oscars, but Jesus bloody fuck, holy Christ, Hopkins and Foster are fucking phenomenal in this movie and they actually did win. This this movie swept the Oscars. I mean, there's a lot of great performances in it, not only ones that won awards, but like Just a lot of amazing shit going on here. So after Starling's story completes, Chilton comes with his men to remove Starling before Lecter can tell her Buffalo Bill's real name. The guy who plays the general in Austin Powers plays one of the two officers who have to bring Lecter food, and it's clear that Lecter will be using Chilton's pen to break out of his handcuffs, and he takes the two men down and kills them while their guards are down. Sorry. So Lecter uses a nightstick to kill at least one of them, and it was noted earlier that he doesn't see much of an elevation in pulse while killing because he's fucking nuts. Downstairs, the other officers see unexpected activity with the elevator and assume Lecter is on the lamb. Yeah, that's right. Right there, so close together. I'm not even spacing them out, guys. I do it all for you. So we see how he left his cell, and it seems like a bit much to accomplish all that he does in the time he has. You know, it just seems like, why are you going to all this trouble? Don't you want to just get the fuck out of there? So this sequence with Lecter's escape is super well executed and memorable. One officer realizes that one of the two original officers is breathing, so they rush to get him into an ambulance. But in that process, they notice blood dripping from above the elevator, and they assume that it's Lecter up there, and they don't know if he's alive or dead. The body on the elevator roof is lifeless, but is close to a gun, so they shoot the body in the leg, and it doesn't move, but they're still super cautious, because Lecter is the kind of guy that it's like, you wouldn't put it past him to not flinch after being shot, you know, that that level of crazy. So just as they think they've confirmed Lecter's death, it's revealed that Lecter actually disguised himself as the surviving guard from the initial breakout, and the body on the elevator was actually that guard. And so Lecter escapes from the ambulance, and Starling reckons that he won't come after her because it would be rude, she says. That's how he would look at it. Uh, apparently, she's right about this. It's it's a little crazy, but that's accurate. Jodie Foster in this movie, she somehow manages to appear like she's only seconds away from crying at any given moment. And I just don't even know how she does it. It's, it's pretty fucking spectacular. 
Starling goes to see a Mr. Bimmel, who is the father of one of the victims of Buffalo Bill, and she finds Polaroids of this victim posing in underwear in a music box, like hidden in this music box in her room. And she also finds a dress with pieces cut out of it. And she informs Crawford by phone that Buffalo Bill is likely making a skin suit from the victims by starving them to loosen their skin, killing them, and then skinning them. They believe his name is James Gum. Basically, Crawford is already en route or en route, whichever you want to say. I'm totally open to either, to actually go to where they believe this James Gum Buffalo Bill guy is. So we get what is easily the most unforgettable scene in this entire movie where Buffalo Bill cross-dresses and dances to the song Goodbye Horses by Q Lazarus and tucks his manly bits back and makes it look like he has a real live vagina. So they orchestrate this sequence with Crawford moving with a team to break in in conjunction with the captive, stealing Bill's dog and holding it hostage. So it's like the girl that's down in this pit that Buffalo Bill has manages to lure his dog and she gets it into the pit and she's like, Buffalo Bill just fucking loves this dog and she's threatening to kill it if he doesn't let her go. And so he's like freaking out. And all of a sudden it's like it's interrupted. His door buzzes and so he leaves and you think it's Crawford and his men. But in reality, it's Starling still continuing her investigation on the off chance that Crawford was wrong, which he turns out to be because Starling is at Buffalo Bill's door and very quickly after getting into Buffalo Bill's house and talking to him briefly and seeing some of the things lying around or on the walls or whatever, it's it's very evident that it's like he's the guy, you know? And so he flees and basically like her rookiness shines through because like she has this opportunity to like get her fucking gun out and put the kibosh on this fucking guy's antics, but she doesn't do it quickly enough. And it's like, that's, I mean, that's, that makes for intense and exciting storytelling because it's like, yeah, I mean, a rookie probably would have problems with that and wouldn't act like someone who had been on, uh, been in the bureau for however many years. So Buffalo Bill flees to the basement and it's very dark in there. And we get this cat and mouse game with Starling trying to locate Bill and she has to deal with this lady that's being held captive who is like fucking freaking out. Like she's yelling at her and she's telling her to get her out of there. And it's like, look, fucking help is here. Like, does it not occur to you that like maybe she needs to secure the area? She needs to make sure that this guy that kidnapped you is not going to cause any further harm. And, you know, as you're as you're looking around, you're kind of thinking to yourself, gosh, I mean, I feel like this this Buffalo Bill guy could stand a tidy up just a little bit in his house, but it is what it is. So Starling goes into this pitch black room to see if she can find Bill. And we see her enter the room through Bill's night vision goggles. So it's like got this like green haze over everything. And the scene really fucking sticks with you. It's not quite like the goodbye horses dance, but it's up there. So it's so intense as you see how close Starling gets to being killed. When Bill pulls the hammer back on his revolver, it gives Starling just enough sense of where he is to turn and fire a fatal shot on him before he can fire at her. 
So Starling graduates and she becomes a full agent. And at a party afterwards, Crawford pulls her aside to congratulate her and tell her that her father would be very proud of her. And But she's told that she has a phone call. And so she goes to take it and Dr. Lecter is on the line. And it's it's like, I mean, psycho or not, how the fuck did this guy get the number to this location to be able to call it? I just, I can't even fucking imagine. Lecter is on the line and he tells her that he doesn't intend to pursue her and that he's having an old friend for dinner, insinuating that he'll eat Dr. Chilton, who we see Lecter watching from a distance. And then we roll credits and that's a great fucking way to end this movie because it's like, it's it's so fucking intense throughout and then it's like, it leaves you on this note of like, holy shit, this dude's still loose, right? Praise for this movie. Every performance in this movie is fucking outstanding from both lead and supporting cast. There are a lot of faces that are familiar that went on to have pretty notable careers and they were just recognizable to me as I watched. And so the story is very well crafted and compelling with great weaving of the main story about the Buffalo Bill killings with the intensity of Dr. Hannibal Lecter and just seeing what he's all about. So there are just so many unbelievable and memorable scenes that are perfectly executed and just stick with you for years after the first time you see it. It's like you're watching this movie and you don't even realize it, even though like there's some striking scenes, don't get me wrong. Like you know that it's a big scene in the movie, but like I went quite a few years without having seen this and I remembered all of these really pivotal scenes because they were so well concocted. I just, I fucking love it. So for criticism, I would say nothing major. Maybe that little bit that I mentioned about this movie not being as rewatchable. Like I still enjoy rewatching it, but it's it's also difficult because you do remember it so well that it's like, it's tough to like sit through it and watch it and have anything fresh for your mind. You know, it's like everything is like, Wow, yeah, I totally fucking remember that. So for trivia, Jodie Foster claims that during the first meeting between Dr. Hannibal Lecter and Clary Starling, Sir Anthony Hopkins's mocking of her Southern accent was improvised on the spot. Foster's horrified reaction was genuine since she felt personally attacked, and she later thanked Hopkins for generating such an honest reaction. After Lecter was moved from Baltimore, the plan was to dress him in a yellow or orange jumpsuit, Sir Anthony Hopkins convinced director Jonathan Demme and the costume designer Colleen Atwood that the character would seem more clinical and unsettling if he was dressed in pure white. Hopkins has since said that he got the idea from his fear of dentists. In preparation for his role, Sir Anthony Hopkins studied the files of serial killers and also he visited prisons and studied convicted murderers and was present during some court hearings concerning gruesome murders and serial killings. So when Jonathan Demme filmed the scene where Lecter and Starling first meet, Sir Anthony Hopkins said that he should look directly at the camera as it panned into his line of sight. He felt Lecter should be portrayed as knowing everything. So one of the inspirations from whom Sir Anthony Hopkins borrowed for his interpretation of Dr. Hannibal Lecter was a friend of his in London who rarely blinked when speaking, which unnerved everyone around him, which that makes sense. I mean, what the fuck, dude? During location scouting for the house in which serial killer James Gum was living, Ted Levine, who plays James Gum, 
was amazed to discover that the house being considered was not only in the town where he grew up, but it was literally next door to the house of his high school girlfriend. Buffalo Bill's infamous dance was not included in the original draft of the screenplay, although it appears in the novel. It was added at the insistence of Ted Levine, who thought the scene was essential in defining the character. The Silence of the Lambs was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry in December of 2011 as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Anthony Hopkins only has just under 25 minutes of screen time, but still won the Best Lead Actor Oscar, which is crazy, I mean. So on to info and ratings, we have a runtime of 118 minutes. This movie is rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, 19 million. Opening weekend, 13.8 million. Worldwide gross, 272.7 million. IMDb rating, 8.6. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 95%. Rotten Tomato Audience score. 95%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. If you're watching this for the very first time, that's my rating for you. I mean, I'll say it's diminished slightly over the years just with the rewatchability, but fundamentally, it is still a great film and it is still very well put together and all of the performances are great. Can't get enough of it. All right, guys. Well, that's our episode for today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, uh, like I said, like and subscribe or follow or whatever. And, you know, I guess that's, uh, that's all I got. So have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews Artwork theme music and podcast are written, performed, recorded, engineered, directed, and produced by Brandon Griffiths in association with Brandon at Random Reviews Entertainment. 